Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Hello again. Welcome to another Paddock Pass podcast and one I'm delighted to say will again revolve around some MotoGP racing. With a spring break of the 2023 calendar now in the hangover stage and the Grand Prix d'Italia Oakley next on the agenda. We've got some opinions on the Grand Prix coming up and also a special rental street sessions interview with Matthew Roberts, former BBC presenter and commentator and now the author of books with people such as Casey Stone or Jorge Lorenzo and John Hopkins. Uh, he's also doing stuff on the Isle of Man, a former world superbike presenter with Eurosport up until this year, I believe, and now focused on British superbikes. So Matt's been in racing a long time, well over 20 years, and uh, got some good stories and some good insight and some good information. The Paddock Pass podcast comes to you thanks to Rental Street. Cheers, guys, and a plea for anyone looking to upgrade components on their motorcycle, head to rental.com. My name is Adam Wheeler, and I'm pleased to be joined by the immense David Emmett and the moribund Neil Morrison. Steve English is attempting the Herculean task of switching from World Superbike in Mizano to the meat of TT racing, so hopefully he and Gordo will get time for a Superbike show. But in the MotoGP meantime, you're stuck with us. Uh, guys, Mugello, Ducati have won four times in the last five years. Dave, can anyone beat them? Uh, it's an interesting question because... Um, obviously, Ducati, uh, Mugello used to be their, te- their, their test track. I mean, they, they used to do a lot of testing there and they still do a little bit of testing there, but more with superbikes rather than, uh, MotoGP bikes. Now they tend to spend more time in, in Misano. The thing about Mugello is, is it's a really flowing track. I mean, it's, it's, it is, um, sort of Mugello, Phillip Island are the two, the two greatest tracks on earth. I would put, uh, Assel and Silverstone just one step below them. Uh, but still, you know, absolute Premier League classes. But, um, yeah, Mugello is just a, an absolutely perfect motorcycle racing track. That means that there's, it, it, it's really flowing. All of the corners tend to come, there's no, you know, first gear corners. It's all second, third gear corners. You're coming off, uh, um, you're carrying speed through corners and accelerating. So even though it is, it's, I think it's the fastest, it's still the fastest track on, on the calendar, though I think, um, uh, Qatar occasionally will sort of like bump, uh, uh, bump the edge of it. Um, we'll, we'll battle for that, uh, for that title. But, um, yeah, it, it's a place where speeds keep on increasing. Um, and, but it's going to be interesting to see. I think Aprilia, you know, really we've got to see what Aprilia can do. Uh, uh, can, if there's a place where Alicia Spargo and Maverick Vinales could challenge the Ducatis, I think it's, uh, uh, I think it's definitely there and also, uh, Assen. And I wouldn't write off, a Yamaha, even though it's a very difficult bike, it, the, the, the one thing where, um, the, the one disadvantage which the Yamaha really has is this acceleration out of slow corners, which is just terrible. Um, there are no slow corners. It's all, all places where you can carry loads of corner speed and accelerate through there. So I think it really negates the weakness of the, the um, uh, of the Yamaha. And I think Fabio Quartararo, uh, he probably realizes this is a track where he can make a result and he's really going to be going out to try to 
to score to do something. Dave, I'd say, you know, we've been away from MotoGP for three weeks and you were going mad, but uh, <laughs> there was actually some foundation in your estimations because in Perco Bagnaia won last year's Grand Prix by 0.6 from Fabio Quattararo. And Neil, of course, um, you know, the the, world, the you know the Frenchman won in his world championship year at Mugello. Yamaha also have a pretty decent record. Jorge Lorenzo won took back-to-back wins a few years ago. So it's not beyond the absurd, even though they're having a terrible season like we kind of summed up in our Patreon show about the surprises of 2023 so far, that Yamaha actually have a half-decent showing uh, around the fantastic Italian circuit. Exactly. We did say that before Jerez, you know, Fabio Quattararo, that is basically his territory. He had only qualified on pole position or second in previous years, but was unable to, I think, get into Q2 on that particular occasion. So I think qualifying could be key to his... um, to his challenge this weekend. Um, Fabio also spoke at Le Mans how basically they're not going to be going through different setups throughout the rest of this year. They're going to go back to their 2021 setting and basically try and stick with that and get the best out of that. Um, So let's see how that approach works. This will be the first weekend where maybe they'll not be turning the bike upside down, trying to get lots of different things from the bike and it could be a bit more settled and that could well that could well suit Fabio um so yeah if there is one track on the calendar where he could make a comeback um you know it, it's probably here maybe Jerez or Catalonia you know alongside Mugello probably his uh, Yamaha's strongest tracks so yeah I think that's one of the big stories going into this weekend really excited to to see whether he can get back because his ride at Mugello last year I think is arguably the best that he ever produced because um, yeah, he was nowhere in qualifying and produced a kind of Herculean fight back from the third row, I think, in the race, despite being consistently outgunned by the, the Ducatis on the main straight. Um, did some fantastic riding through the twisty bits. So um, yeah, if that Quattro is, is kind of here um, in the coming, coming days, then yeah, maybe he can be at the sharp end as well as a, a host of Ducatis. Speaking of comebacks, we know that Paula Spargaro will not be joining the MotoGP grid just yet. A press release issued by Gas Gas saying that the uh, the Catalan was close, but not close enough. Possibly we could see him in Germany. Of course, now MotoGP is entering a triple uh, back-to-back stint of races. So let's see if uh, Gas Gas can finally be back to full strength for that round. So Jonas Vogel steps in. No word as of yet on Miguel Oliveira for the RNF Apulia team. Uh, but Enea Bastianini should be coming back in. But uh, we were just saying before we recorded, Neil, that you know Bastianini's record in Mugello is not particularly shining. Um, you know, I think a fifth place is the best he's taken in Moto3, you know, six, seven years ago. Uh, so even though Bastianini's back in the pack and obviously has the best motorcycle on the grid at his disposal, there's no kind of indication that he's really going to be upsetting, you know, the fight for podium contention. Dave, also speaking of riders, just before we get onto one of the other talking points about Mugello, which is the amount of public that would turn up, it's also a phase of the calendar where contracts or discussions about the future of, of riders could maybe get a little bit more intense. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, Mugello is where contracts discussions start, uh, it start in earnest. Um, the teams don't like to, or the, certainly the factories, they don't like to start talking too early, um, because the, the flyaways or, well, uh, the, 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 the American races, uh, Argentina and 
and uh, Austin are generally so sort of strange that it's difficult to really draw conclusions from it. I mean, you know, the fact that Alex Rins won in, in Texas uh, and then, you know, really struggled in uh, at Jerez and Le Mans, that, that sort of tells you a lot about it. So, yes, I think it's the opening phase of, uh, of contracts there. We're likely to see a very intense series of negotiations from now until uh, from through from Magello Saxon Ring and then uh maybe we we might get the, uh, a contract signed uh, a contract or two signed at um um at Assen we might have to wait until the the summer break but um yeah i, I think there's things to do obviously the the, the big question is does Franco Morbidelli stay or does he go? Uh, who replaces him? Uh, does Tony Arbolino get a, uh, get a seat in Ducati somewhere? Um, what happens with Pedro Acosta? Um, and now I think, I think to me, the Pedro Acosta decision is much more of a long, it will be a longer term thing. I would more, I'm, I'd expect to see that signed in Austria for, you know, a lot of really obvious reasons. Um, because, you know, maybe where do KTM put him? Where do they slot him in? Um, so yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of, uh, a, a lot to open, but there's, there's one or two. I, I think here is where we will start to hear the first real rumors. Neil, two questions for you. Is there a Grand Prix where you sleep any closer to the circuit than Mugello, knowing that I think you could actually walk in to this particular event? And secondly, how excited are you to see Andrea De Vizioso be coronated <laughs> as a MotoGP legend on Thursday? Um, one year I stayed like in a place next to the sax ring where from my bedroom window I could see, I think, turn nine. Um, but on a regular basis, yeah, this is definitely that was in 2021 when no fans were allowed in, so that was a, a sort of a, a special year. So yeah, this is probably the closest. That, yeah, I would say you could probably walk from our villa to the track in about half an hour, um, and it's really like it's a fabulous setting. It is really really nice. Um, so yeah, probably the closest of the year. And regarding Davizioso being crowned MotoGP legend, I mean that's going to be the the crowning moment of of my year. I think it's uh, uh, th there aren't many better things to see uh, he's he's always been a legend in uh, in neil's heart that's for sure why is it taking so long for him to be inducted into the the, the hall of fame that's what i ask <laughs> but uh, you know not a motor gp world champion that brings up the drags up the old subject should you be a premier class world champion to be included in this yeah, but they've kind of got to the stage that there's so many legends now that all the former champions have already been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of fast running out of, of names to, to convert. They need to have at least two each year, I think. So, um, yeah, it's looking down at guys with three or four second places in the championship now. I actually want to talk to Andrea about another subject because there's some rumours that a, a round or two of MXGP this year will be uh, changed and Faenza, which has been, um, you know, an Italian replacement venue in the last couple of uh, years, has now been bought by Andrea Dovizioso, and he's turned it into something of a motocross kind of sport park. 
Uh, so it's in the transformative stages. I want to ask him if he's actually considered running a Grand Prix. So uh, talk about going from MotoGP uh, icon to legend to motocross uh, power broker. It's uh, it's quite a transition. It was always very funny in the uh, in the Ducati hospitality whenever you were at a race because normally Dovizio said you know he just couldn't get out of there fast enough to to avoid talking to us. But as soon as you were there, he was sort of like straight over and he button buttonholing you and asking you everything. Uh, uh, everything possible about uh, about MXGP. It's clear that you know he was at, he only really went road racing to fund his MXG you know his motocross career. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if he had bought Fienza. Yeah, it's actually quite in the know. Uh, is Andrea? He told me some gossip once, which I didn't know, and I thought, right, okay, I better dig around. And he was right. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it'd be good to see Dobby back in the paddock, guys. This one other subject, and we're considering doing a live show for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone on the first week of August. So tell us, is this a good idea or not? Would you come out? Would you listen to us? We'll have some kind of uh, trivia going on. We'll dig up some subjects and proper bench racing. Um, write to us on Twitter at paddockpasspod or drop us a line on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, we'll be back on duty with the note show in Michello. We want to know, if you want to know rather, what riders have said and what's going on from the circuit on a daily basis, then sign up and get that special content. One of the things we'll be looking out for in particular, Dave, is um, how many people come through the gate. Uh, we're firmly into the you know post-Valentino Rossi period now in MotoGP. Uh, if you're an Italian fan, honestly, it couldn't be better. Italian world champion, Italian manufacturer, dominating proceedings. Um, I you put a post recently on Twitter, I think, where you know you highlighted the prices for the weekend. And while we had been praising Le Mans' value for money, Mugello still seemed pretty pricey for a weekend ticket. Uh, thankfully, there's no clashes with the likes of Formula One. I mean, they've done their signature events, kind of Barcelona GP was very popular, Monaco, of course. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we might see a bigger gate in Mugello this year. I think that's going to be one of the big kind of uh, narratives, isn't it, from this Grand Prix? Yeah, definitely. I remember last year, um, I mean, normally when you uh, driving into Mugello is, is a question of trying, well, trying not to run over as many people as possible and sometimes actively trying to run them over because they're being really <laughs> annoying. Um, but that, you know, like there's usually massive traffic jams. There's usually, uh, um, uh, huge crowds, huge, cr- um, especially huge crowds going down this one narrow little, uh, country lane towards the, which is, which heads towards the entrance. Um, and I just sailed through last year. I was genuinely astonished at, at how empty it was. And it looked, it did look a, a little bit sad, but I mean, we've talked about this before that, um, you know, Magello is sandwiched in between three of the biggest events of the year, you know, with Le Mans, Saxon Ring and Assen, where there's so much going on. There's so much entertainment all the, all the time. And Ass or uh, Magello, you know, apart from the racing, there's not a great deal going on. I think that they're, t- they're trying to put on a few more entertainments. Um, there's going to be sort of like a DJ playing after the race on Sunday, uh, uh, for half an hour. There's going to be a few other bits and bobs, but, um, yeah, I am genuinely intrigued to see whether Mugello can start to, whether the crowds will be a little bit larger, well, whether they'll start to come back because, uh, I always thought that it would be, you know, speed which killed, um, the, the, um, Magella. The, the fact that the bikes are getting faster and we, there's just sort of not enough room for them to go at those speeds. Um, but if we keep getting crowds of sort of, you know, between 30 and 40,000, then the race itself does, stops being sustainable. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we also shouldn't forget that while perhaps the majority of Italy couldn't give a toss, um, Neil, this actually comes around to you because this will be um, a Mugello weekend where you won't have to worry about a Champions League final and all the stresses that come with it. Uh, that's not to pick anything at Liverpool, by the way, in this kind of mediocre Premier League campaign this year. But, you know, Inter Milan are playing against Manchester City. I mean, it could be another thing that deters potential fans from camping out of Mugello for the weekend. But uh like we say, it's a minor thing. We just hope that, you know, people embrace, um, you know, the force that is Ducati at the moment um, and the, the spectacle that is Mugello. And, uh, you know, the prices of the tickets don't turn out to be such an inhibitive kind of factor when it comes to enjoying another Grand Prix weekend. And the fact that it's coming after a bit of a break for MotoGP, perhaps it will inspire people to actually get on their bike or on their car or, you know, grab a tent and actually camp out for the weekend. But um Regardless of which, we're hoping Mugello will be a strong Grand Prix before going to the Saxa Ring and also Asim. Three fantastic tracks, Dave. I mean, talk about the uh, the differences in, you know, riding demands between all three of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, like I say, I, I think Asin and, uh, and Mugello are sort of similar in the way that, they're, you know, they are fast and flowing tracks. Um, Saxon Ring is a, a, another track completely different uh it's it's very very tight but again you're spending so much time on the side of the tire um that's what makes the saxon ring so uh, uh so so interesting also as well so it, yeah i mean it, it's it's very different certainly very different from the kind of stop and go that we had at uh, uh at le mans um and then three very important and it's going to be very important also just to survive these next three ra- these next three races with the sprint races on the Saturday. If you get injured at Mugello, then you stand to lose an awful lot of points. One thing that could be a bit of a, a red herring, or a, you know, something that could shake results up, is I saw some weather forecasts uh, for the weekend ahead, and it's looking. I mean, initially that uh, we could have some heavy rain on both Saturday and Sunday. So um, I think uh, weather played its part in qualifying last year. We had Fabio De Gian Antonio on the, the front row on pole position um, in a kind of crazy, um, slightly wet, then dry qualifying session. Um, and yeah, you wonder whether that could uh, shake things up again um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a scary place in the uh, in the dry, but in the wet as well. Um, it could be It could be really scary. Um, and also, I think I'm going to be holding my breath most of all this weekend because the sprint, we know it's had some pretty hairy encounters so far this year, but imagining just the kind of craziness that we might see going into uh, San Donato on the first lap or the second lap or the third lap of the sprint, I think that could be quite hairy. And so, yeah, I think um, I'm just hoping for a kind of safe weekend more than more than going into any other MotoGP run this year. I think, uh, yeah, Mugello, you hope, will pass without incident. Guys, we're going to go for a quick break, but when we come back, we're going straight in, into the interview with Matt. Uh, it was it was pretty interesting, wasn't it? We haven't had him on the podcast before, but like we say, um, you know, a guy who was a journalist turned into a presenter, is an author as well. You know, he had some nice stories, but like we mentioned, also had some interesting opinions on the state of play when it comes to British riders and also that kind of transition from, say, Superbike or from Moto2, Moto3 into the Premier class. Yeah, I, I was. I found it really interesting the stuff that he was saying about um, the difficulty that people face going switching between series. Uh, you know what makes it so difficult to succeed in MotoGP uh, if you're not going through the entire uh, sort of 
uh, you know, the the entire FIM Junior, uh, 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 was it the FIM Junior Championship? Uh, and that, Junior GP. Yeah, Junior GP, Red Bull rookies, that sort of route. Uh, what the alternative routes are, all the rest of it, that that, that was particularly interesting. And, you know, Matt's a, a, a fun and funny guy. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit handlebar comparison tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend. That's all from us. So thanks for listening. Thanks to Renthal and more from Italy. And uh, here's our chat with Matthew Roberts. See you next time. Math, uh, good to have you with us. You're on the Isle of Man. Uh, what's what's going on there? What's the crack? Oh, not a lot. Nothing really happening here, mate. No, it's really quiet. Spa tourism. Perhaps they'll hold a trophy to uh, for the uh, for for the tourism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's the annual tourist uh, championship, the tourist trophy. Yeah, the TT. So I'm here for two weeks. I've already been here. Oh, I forget what day it is now. Um, yeah, I've been here for five days already, um, and just about another week or so to go. But um, we're more or less done with practice week. Uh, it's been really good. The weather's been absolutely mega. It's been unbelievable. We've had probably the best conditions, well, certainly in a long time, but I mean, I can't imagine them ever being any better than what they've had. It's been really warm, really still. Touchwood so far, it's been relatively without incident and um, the pace is really hot and the island is busy and when it's like this, it's a really good place to be. I mean, you know, you've you've kept sort of contact or touch with MotoGP. I mean, I, how many years did you actually work in the championship, mate? I can't remember. I mean, it must have been, what, like 15 or so? Me and you both had black hair. I don't know when we started. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> we did. Well, I think I was going grey before you, though, mate. That was for sure. Um, but, of course, like, you transitioned into World Superbike. Um, you were the face of MotoGP on the BBC, World Superbike, British Superbike, the Isle of Man, like you say. I mean, your face has been pretty much everywhere. But um, just give us a bit of history, you know, with with MotoGP initially, because this that's the orientation for this podcast. Um, you know, you were based, obviously, we we met each other, you know, good friends um, when we were working for Dorna. I think we were the first British guys. And then, of course, drawn by Gavin Emmett, um, who's now sort of BT Sports main guy. Uh, it's It's been, been a long old road, isn't it? Yeah, it has. And when you say it like that, I never, ever for one minute imagined that this is how it would have turned out, you know, and... We went over there in those very early days to Dorna as effectively, like you said, the first, we were the first British people there. Funnily enough, um, there was a British kind of contingent before us of, of camera operatives and um, production staff that was Greenlight TV, which now produces the Isle of Man TV. So when I'm at the Greenlight offices, when I'm over here, see all these signed photographs on the wall of Wayne Rainey and Kevin Schwantz and all those guys and remembering those days when they were doing it. So it's quite funny because that was the overlap there when Donna decided to take everything in house and then they needed some English uh, presence in there to write the press releases as you remember Adam uh, the website do some general translating and stuff like that um, and I'd I'd done my degree in Spanish in media studies so I think and that's what gave me the edge over you for the, in that first job interview mate but you were you were like a month or so behind me weren't you when they realized that they needed somebody a bit more qualified on motorcycles I think 
because I didn't know the first thing. Yeah. If you remember sort of MotoGP.com well, back in the first days, I mean, it was such a rudimentary website with just us writing text and stories. And now it's this uh, this kind of monolith of video and all sorts of content and, and whatever else. So it's been, um, yeah, it's remarkable to see see the change in it. But I mean, you quickly transitioned out of, you know, writing stories to presenting and, you know, that the BBC gig was a was a big thing, wasn't it? Because talking about the wider picture it was you know the last time MotoGP was on free to wear you know it was um, a large audience a large platform for the sport especially in the UK yeah that's right and I think sometimes I've probably talked about it before and I looked back and thought it was kind of a uh, a strange story that I made that progression but it also really it wasn't because when I was at uni in my final year I did um, some video stuff um, I really enjoyed being on camera and if you remember before I actually started with Donna, I did this crazy TV show in the UK where I traveled from uh, San Francisco down to Buenos Aires. It was like a, a, a backwater cable station uh, that I did this youth travel show on. So I presented to camera, albeit, you know, in, in a pretty rudimentary way before. And I didn't and I'd really enjoyed that. So I think probably in the back of my mind, I was thinking about uh, a career in television. And then when the BBC came in and Oh, five, and we'd started doing our, I'd started doing world feed commentary with, with Nick Harris by that point, purely because there wasn't really anybody, you know, in the office you were doing uh, motocross by then. And, and I was kind of the person who was sort of in line to, to help Nick out because obviously they were trying to save some money and I was, I was already there. So once I started doing the TV commentary and then the BBC took that for the, when they started to dip their toe into it. I, I could sort of see, hang on, there's a potential opportunity if I play my cards right and ride this way for a little bit that I could end up getting in, into the BBC maybe and doing some TV work. So I wouldn't say it was just like a happy coincidence that I was just rolling along and, and then it happened because probably the reality when I actually think back to it was that I was quite determined that that was what was going to happen. And yeah. Uh, and I pushed pretty hard for it in the end. Was that the big break, if you like? Was that because, you know, since then you've worked for Eurosport um, uh, and done all sorts of other things, but that was uh, what made the difference? Yeah, definitely. I, well, a couple of things about it. First of all, I have to say, um, you know, Adam mentioned Gav there as well, and Gav came in shot after me. No relation, I would I would, uh, I would, would like to point out. Yeah, he, <laughs> he says that too, David, to be fair. <laughs> point that out. Usually when you raise your hand at a press conference, I think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He wants nothing to do with me at that point, which is fair <laughs> enough, I, is, I reckon. Whatever this is, is nothing to do with me. Now, um, yeah, Gav and I had met at uni, and uh, after Adam and, and myself had been at Donna for a few months, our boss at the time, Paco, came in and he said to me, oh, we could do with another one. And I'd just been on holiday with Gav, actually, uh, on a, like a lad's holiday. And um, anyway, long story short, um, Gav came out and worked with us as well. Um, and he was, when the BBC first came in in 2005, he did the pit lane, um, pit lane reporting for them. Um, and then he got offered a, a bit of a step up at Dawn, actually, um, to become kind of our boss, which was a big move for him at the time. It meant he couldn't do the TV and um, it was a big decision for him. And he, he decided to do it. So that opened up, that was my big break then, because, you know, I knew that with Gav doing that, that would give me the chance to, to step into his shoes of the BBC. And of course, when you're doing, um, you, you're going out on terrestrial TV in the UK, on, on BBC Two, they were getting an audience of between 1.1, 1.4 million viewers for MotoGP. 
Uh, and for the British Grand Prix, they go into the main channel, BBC One, and get three million viewers just like that. Because that was, the, you know, viewing habits at the time and, and still, you know, to an extent, to this day, people watch BBC One when they turn the TV on. So, so yeah, it kind of opened me up then to a, an audience and gave me a lot of credibility because the BBC is so well-established and well-renowned around the world, for better or worse. Um, yeah, it was definitely a, a great chance for me to, to learn the ropes as well. I'd working with top professionals, both in front of the camera and, and behind it as well. So it was a really good education and I was able to sort of go under the radar a little bit and do as little or as much as they wanted me to do in those early days because Susie Perry was the presenter and I'd chip in with some pre-recorded stuff and then the occasional live hit. And then 2007, uh, after I'd been doing it for sort of 18 months or so, we were out in China and Susie got food poisoning. And it was only a short program, that one. It was about a 10-minute build-up before the race. Uh, live in 2007 and um yeah I, you know that i say i had no choice i think they had no choice but to just shove me <laughs> shove me in front of their camera and and, and see what happened and it, it, i just about got away with that one and then um yeah i got a few more opportunities and it, and it went from there so yeah 100 percent, david and i think when effectively what happened was the the rights ran out for the bbc and they didn't manage to uh, retain them at the end of 2013 by which time i'd had a I'd had a good crack at the whip, you know, um, and um, yeah, and the opportunity came then to go to Eurosport, but I, I, that wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for the BBC thing for sure, you know. So yeah, it was a big, it was a big turning point. Matt, can you talk a little bit about how MotoGP was at that time? Obviously, I guess it was peak sort of Rossi mania, um, sort of mid-2000s, and you had a lot of characters racing in the paddock at that time. I don't know, think of the likes of Biaggi or Colin Edwards or Troy Bayliss, I guess. You know, you had a lot of characters basically that could give you, I guess, good interviews, good good clips. I mean, how, how, was, how was that for you? Yeah, it was intimidating at first, Neil, to be honest. Uh, and, I, and I think now... I, I see all the content that goes out now on main channels on MotoGP.com and on all the individual team socials and stuff. And the riders understanding of what's expected of them from a media point of view has completely changed. And that was probably the, I would say the big difference when, when I went in there, I didn't really know what to do or uh, how to approach these guys. And a lot of them were either they were quite aloof or I perceived them to be quite aloof and difficult to approach. And some of them would be working with media officers that were just as difficult, to be honest with you. So, no, <laughs> it was still the case. Still the case. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, that's a bit of a bugbear of mine, to be honest. You know, there are some really good um, press officers out there, but there are some that uh, fundamentally misunderstand their role, which is to facilitate <laughs> the riders' relationship with the media. And they, they think it's their role to get in the way of that. But anyway, that's a that's a that's just a little bugbear get that off my chest um so yeah it, it was it was really different so you'd have to you know nine times out of ten you'd be approaching the rider directly to get stuff and where are you going to do that it's either while they're having their lunch in the hospitality unit where they don't want to speak to you or you're going and tapping on the motorhome door which takes um takes some balls and I, I probably didn't have that <laughs> at the time so probably a missed opportunity in a way when I when I think back at the at what I perhaps could have been doing and creating but um you know um I think it's different now. But, you know, you imagine going up to Kenny Kenny Roberts Jr. and knocking on his motorhome door and he doesn't know who you are and you're in a Donna uniform. You do, you can imagine it, you'd have got short shrift. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you're talking about professionalisation because, like, the professionalisation has been throughout all of the sport, really. I, I mean, it, I've, 
are you seeing that the same in World Superbikes in in BSB in the uh, the TT, or are there still, if you like, natural characters who um, uh, unpolished people, you know, who, who haven't been through the uh, the the PR preparation mill? Yeah, 100%, first of all, BSBs and especially the TT, the guys are so approachable, you know, and, and they're the ones who are, are really at that stage of their career, especially in BSB, where they really want to push themselves on and they know that either they're being paid, you know, some of the, a lot in BSB, a lot of guys aren't drawing a wage from a team, they're drawing wage, wages from personal sponsors. And if they don't get themselves on the TV, then, you know, that's not good for their personal sponsors. So there's, just the basic relationship there, basic dynamic going on that makes them more um, approachable and more willing to to speak, I suppose. And perhaps the, the more you move up and you go into MotoGP and they get on big salaries from the teams and it's, well, it's not my fault, you know, I don't really need to speak to you, it's down to whatever the team decides. So that, that all changes. So does that make them better people, more humble people, more approachable? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just the, the situation that they're in, you know? Um, there's probably a lot of that, but um, yeah, it's 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 quite refreshing coming from MotoGP to go and work in BSB and know that these guys. Let's say, for example, you get a red flag during a, a live broadcast situation and you're trying to fill time. Um, that was always getting harder and harder to do in MotoGP because you've got to go through a press officer, a press officer every time. In BSB, we get a red flag. All you need to do is walk down pit lane and people are stepping out of their pit garages to talk to you. You know, literally. So. That makes the job a lot easier in that respect. Um, Dave asked you about sort of characters and dealing with riders at the time, Matt. And one of the reasons why you and I don't talk so much is because frustratingly, you're as good a writer as you are a presenter. So, um, you know, I think uh, your skills on the page are up there, mate. I mean, and that's been, you know, borne out by your, your sort of sidelines as an author. I mean, working with Casey Stoner, Jorge Lorenzo, John Hopkins, just to name a couple you know, and production of those books. Um, tell us a couple of stories, because I can remember you driving a particularly luxurious car um, given to you by Alberto Puig that was kind of, you know, passed around the Stoner family. And you had a good friendship with Casey and the likes of Chaz, Chaz Davies. Um, and, you know, that led on to, you know, a, a close relationship and ultimately a book and I guess a friendship that lasts to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice memories, actually. Don't stop to think about that stuff too often these days. But yeah, I remember the first time I met Casey, because obviously they came over, Charles and Casey were part of that Movistar uh, project with Donna and, and Alberto. So you'd see them a couple of times uh, kicking around the Donna offices, you know, coming in to sign the contracts or whatever they were doing. And I remember um, Tony Calvo, who was in charge of all of that for Donna, taking Casey and Colin over to, do you remember the supermarket across from Donna, Esclat, where they do the menu del dia? <laughs> Um, and we'd often have lunch over there. And yeah, and I ended up sitting with Casey and his dad. This is before I'd even rode a Grand Prix, you know. Um, maybe they'd done a wild card, I think, in 2001. Uh, yeah, I think the wild card. Had been- well, just to mention to listeners as well, Tony Calvo now runs the, the Honda Asia team. So he's kind of looking after Chanchur and Ayagura. So he's still very much sort of implicit in, in MotoGP still. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Lovely guy, Tony, really nice fella. Um, and he's been involved in that youth sort of development stuff for, for that's how long he's been around. Um, so they were kind of, you know, the Stoners and uh, and then Chaz a little bit at the at the GPs, but the Stoners in Spain when they first landed, you know, everybody knows that story of, you know, they didn't have a lot. Um, they were moving around a fair bit 
and I kind of think I just felt age-wise sort of in the middle a little bit of Casey and his dad you know so I could sort of relate to both of them and had lunch with them that day in the supermarket and then we just hung out with them a little bit between races we went to watch the motocross at Belle Pudge who you know did uh, various things went go-karting they came to our house in in Sitges where I was living and, and stuff like that and yeah the, the car thing was Alberto had given them this old Citroen BX and when I say old it's funny isn't it now like old cars a 10 year old car now looks almost brand new but you know 20 years ago a 10 year old car was <laughs> rotten and hanging on and that's what this old Citroen was big red Citroen BX and Alberto given it to the stoners to drive around in, but he'd never actually signed it over to them because they didn't have a residency in Spain. So then Colin says to me, hey, Matt, um, I'm thinking of buying a, a little Cinquecento Fiat to put in a trailer on the back of the motorhome, but I can't register it in, over here. If I register it in your name, you can have the Citroen. And I didn't have two, you know, two euros to rub together at the time. Anyway, I didn't have a car. You know, let's, let's be honest, donor wages at that, at that time were, were great. I don't know if that's changed, but... Uh, we were pretty low down the pecking order. So I was like, yeah, great. So so that's how that happened. I I, I put the Chinky Cento in my name, which caused a few issues further down the line when it got it got abandoned <laughs> somewhere in Europe. And um and uh, yeah, and then I inherited the Citroen. But that, that that car only lasted I remember that car lasted about a year and then something went on it, the gearbox went or something, and I took it to the garage and the guy was like, Oh, this is pretty unfixable, you know. You're better off just trashing it. So I trashed it. And then I told Alberto, I was like, Oh, funny story, you know that Citroen BX, you know, it's it's uh it's gone to the and it had been in his family since it was brand new. So it's gone to the uh, scrapyard and he looks at me, you know, like how he does with this proper serious face. <laughs> he went, there was nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> just not the first time. <laughs> stepped away from the conversation with Alberto. I can remember a time he went karting with Casey and um, he was ridiculously quick, even on four wheels. And I remember you and I at the time were saying, yeah, it's only because he's got a few kilos less than us. Don't worry, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just what it's got to be down to. I mean, you couldn't have known then how good he would be and sort of what, how he would become one of the aliens of MotoGP. When, when it came to sort of writing the book and then moving on to writing other writers' books, I mean, how was that process for you? Was it tougher? Was it, um, or was it something that fell to you quite naturally? With the Casey one, I was quite invested in the story anyway because, like, like we said, I, I knew them and I knew him to be very different to what uh, the public perception of him was. And I suppose it was personal mission in a way to... Um, to change that, or at least to give him a voice. Um, and I think with, with him, there were two things that people didn't really understand about him. Um, one was, why was he so fast? And two, why did he retire so early? And I thought, if I can capture his true character and answer those two questions in the book, really, then um, that will be worth reading, you know, and that will get people's attention or, or make them want to read it. And, and, and the two things essentially went, hand in hand because why was he so fast because he was he was riding doing nothing but riding from you know as soon as he could walk uh doing all different kinds of riding doing purposeful practice like every day hours and hours of different types of riding you know he was incentivized from a young age to go fast and um, had a completely different upbringing to probably anyone else in the world and that made him completely different and also it made him burn out um much more quickly too so that, so the answer to both questions was essentially the same one but 
through that, we, you know, we were able to kind of chart his whole story from, from his earliest days to, um, to his, uh, to, to the end of his career. And, and, and of course, you know, whenever any of us look back, we remember things in, in our own way through our own lens and it might not be totally accurate. And there were certain things that his parents remembered and Casey remembered a little bit differently. And that was a challenge to be fair, but hopefully in the end we did it justice. It went through a lot of rounds of, um, scrutiny anyway so um yeah <laughs> you can imagine that era of moto gp matt i mean when casey was riding you had him jorge danny valentino and i guess those were the the, the four main guys and it's quite different to how moto gp looks nowadays where you have just a I don't know, 10, 11 guys sometimes fighting for the podium at uh, a single race. I mean, from your point of view, um, maybe we don't have the outright superstars that we had, you know, when you were working in the championship at the BBC, um, but maybe we have a bit more variety now. I mean, what's your kind of view on that? Do you think it's MotoGP is in a better place now, or do you think it's still, it, it lacks a little bit of that star power that was uh, evident, I think, when you were, you know, working for the BBC? so difficult to answer that question but I do think it suffers a little bit mind you saying that you know the minute Pecco you know last year was, was so so dominant really wasn't he although like you said on, on their day almost anybody in the grid can win a race I suppose that's good I think the previous year uh when you, you're literally turning up to a track and you've got no idea who's going to win because all the riders are on such a, a similar level all the bikes are on such a similar level and it all comes down to how well does a bike or a tire combination or bike and tire um, relationship work at a particular track. And in the end, that's, that's taken away from the individualism of the rider, isn't it? So uh, yeah, I, I, I think it probably has lost something in, in that respect. And also what I, the other thing that I see from the outside now when I look at it, Neil, is we're talking before about Casey's upbringing being different to anybody else's and, and so was Jorge Lorenzo's and so was Danny Pedrosa's and so was Ben Spee's. And because of that, um, you had different riding styles on track that were, uh, and Valentino and Colin, you know, you you only have to look at them through two corners and you know which rider it is. It, I've only been to a handful of MotoGP rounds recently, but I remember being in Austria last year and watching out of the, the window and trackside thinking, I can't even tell the difference between these guys because they've all had such a similar background. They've all come through talent cups and, Moto3, Moto2 to MotoGP now, uh, that the sort of established best practice of how to ride is is really similar and they don't have these ingrained habits from whether it's dirt track or or mini bikes or or whatever. So so that was the other, I think, big pull of MotoGP back then was you had guys with completely contrasting riding styles all going very similar speeds, but doing it all in a different way with a different view on life, with different upbringings and and that made it really, um, you know, that gave it an extra, an extra something, I think. So it's a fine line, isn't it, between how do you get kids through from different countries? How did you give them the opportunities and create a, a more international uh, grid and a more equal playing field without losing some of that personality? It's tricky. But you see, I think you see it in a lot of professional sport. You see it in, a, in professional football, for example, in soccer. You know, a lot of kids now come through academies and... Um, they're kind of like identikit. You get the odd maverick, but generally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, you're obviously uh, working in, in the BSP paddock, 
MotoGP uh, at the moment is suffering from a, a kind of a dearth of, of British riders. We haven't had one in the class since, you know, Cal retired um, full time at the end of 2020. Um, looking at the junior classes, I mean, there's some obviously young talents around. We've got some kids coming through the British Talent Cup. But I mean, do you see um, any kids currently in the in the British paddock um, that you can maybe see making it into GPs. I mean, how do you see that as a kind of production line? Yeah, again, you know, and that's that's an age-old problem, isn't it? That the kids who are coming through the British paddock now, if you don't move on quickly from the British Talent Cup into the you know Spanish system or European system, then it's going to be a big challenge to ever get there, like a huge challenge to ever get there. Um, if if maybe if MotoGP were looking more at World Superbike, maybe you'd see a bit of a route there. But I'll give you a couple of examples. So like. Uh, you know, Rory Skinner won the Talent Cup a couple of years ago. He's ended up in Moto2 now because he's always been good enough, but, you know, he didn't quite get the opportunities or things didn't work out there. Uh, kick on Max Cook won it a couple of years ago. Max ended up with no ride after the Talent Cup. or He went and did the talent team and it didn't happen. He's coming back now through Stock 6. He's now got a ride in Superbikes and he looks like he's he's got some talent. Um, a kick off Franco Bourne, Jordi Kid, uh, did awesome, won the um, Talent Cup disappeared for a bit he's come back through stock six he's now in stock thousand and 18 he's only 18 and he, he won the first round in silverstone and he looked he looked mega on the bike and all the guys who were riding with him dan linfoot was riding with him and said this kid's got serious talent but what's the path now for him it's going to take him a couple of years to get to bsb level and it might take him a, a couple of years to get to world superbike level if he gets that chance you know you've got bradley ray who's last year's British Superbike champion, Brad Ray rode in, in Red Bull Rookies with Toprak Raskatiotlu, with uh, Jorge Martin and, um, and Juan Mir. He was in that. Yeah. And th- th- look what those guys are doing now. And, you know, and Brad had to go and do CEV, Moto2, you know, Stock 6 stuff, Supersport stuff. And in my opinion, <clears throat> had demonstrated that he had that talent. But, um, you know, Kyle Ride was in that age group too, but it didn't stand out as much. I mean, Brad went to um, Circuit of Americas, Texas, and the Red Bull, and won by 10 seconds. Excuse me. Finished fourth in the championship and won one race by 10 seconds. Now, you can't tell me that that's not a kid with the talent to at least get a chance to go with with, with those guys. But unfortunately, it's not really been available to British riders. Thankfully, I think that's changed now with, with Vision Track, you know, putting the money in that they're doing now and supporting the... Uh, the the British team, and and I think in Casey O'Gorman, there's there's a talent there that's definitely got the potential to go. I mean, he's Irish, um, he's a little bit British because he's he's lived in the UK his whole life. But um, yeah, I think he he's he's probably the. I would say right now you've got him in the in the talent cup and in the in the rookies, and then in the British paddock you're probably looking at I think Franco Bourne. If you want me to give you a name, it's someone who's looks like he's got the ability to go go places. To build on that, there's leads me to two questions. The first is, is it really just uh, down to money? You know, the ability, because there is a period in people's careers where they need to be able to fund their career. I think after Red Bull rookies and into Moto3, especially in Moto3, um, you need to have a couple of good years with a very strong team. And if you don't get picked up um, by one of the big teams, then you have to be able to, uh, you know, fund a, fund a ride in a good team. Um, and the second one is, is the pathway for British riders much more through World Superbikes again? It was, you know, traditionally, if we look at who dominated World Superbikes for 
you know, probably the past decade or so. Um, yeah. To go the GP route, if you like, um, and I know because I've, I've done a little bit of work with, with a young rider over here and his, and his family to try and help him get into into that paddock. And this is a super talented young kid. Um, and if you want to go to a top team for the and do the European Talent Cup, for example, that's going to cost you 75, 80,000 euros just for the ride. You know, that's a lot of money, obviously. Now, there are people here, there are um, sponsors, philanthropists, rich Sunday races, weekend races, who will find that down the back of the sofa if you, if you know the right people. It's, it's quite amazing, actually. But it isn't just the money. To answer your first question, David, it isn't just the money. That is, that is a problem, um, but it's not necessarily an insurmountable one. Then you have things like um, relationships, you know, you know, we're talking about 14 year old kids, you're 13, 14 year old kids, right? Is the dad going to be able to go to all the rounds with them? Can he take the time off work? Can the mum go with them? What's that relationship going to be like? Is the dad prepared to let someone else effectively take over control of his kid's career when he's managed it up to that point? Um, you know, we, we all might have an opinion on what the best route is, but then is it the best for the kid? You know, is, is it right that they go off racing at, at 14 years of age and they don't build, you know, relationships with their friends at school and stuff like that? So. I think it's really nuanced. I think it's really difficult. And, and for all of those reasons, it is a bit more easy for kids who are already in, in Europe and Spain. And whether or not it's possible to get to the very top without making those kind of sacrifices, I'm not sure. And it's that that's a bit of a shame as well. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it's complex, you know, and it's not, although that is an issue. And because of that, the other, like I said, the other thing is if, if it doesn't happen, that route, and they do have to come back to the UK, then in the UK is definitely a superbike route. And if you want to get to the top of that, then you're looking at World Superbike. Like, like I said, look at Bradley Ray, you know, he's, he's finally got to World Superbike, but he's on one of the least competitive packages on the grid. You know, he's, he's not earning great out of it, but it's an opportunity to get himself there. And he's 25, 26 years old now. In fact, he's just turned 26. So, you know, still think of him as a young rider, but he's had to put in a decade into getting himself back to world level, you know. We know you've got to head back out to the island, uh, Matt. So thanks ever so much for your time. But, um, you know, as well as presenting and writing and, you know, generally being a, a well-known face in sort of British road racing circles, I mean, you're also doing some stuff with coaching now. Um, what was that motivated by? I mean, what's it all about? Yeah, I, um, I've been kind of battling with what do I do beyond TV and racing for a few years, you know, as you know. Because um, the thing with a TV job is you'd never quite know. Like I said, the the, the B, BBC job was great. And then in 2013, they lost the rights and it all ended. And I was like, oh, luckily I got on with Eurosport. But then, you know, sooner or later, th things come to an end. So I've been looking outside of racing and stuff for, for a while. I did a master's in sport directorship, um, which I just completed just like at the back end of last year. Um, like I said, I quite enjoy, had a little bit of a role helping uh, shaky out with managing a couple of riders and got interested in that and um and as part of that the coaching thing um so i don't know if anyone is familiar with executive coaching i wasn't before i started my my masters but we had had it given to us the opportunity to be coached and coaching really is is sitting down with with somebody who can uh, listen to you um ask the right kind of questions to help you get to 
uh, answers to move you forward with whether it's a decision that you might be making about a career change or an issue that you're dealing with at home um and i was given some coaching that massively helped me over the last couple of years and i realized that the sort of fundamentals of being a good coach um listening to somebody's story and being interested in other people and uh helping them uh, which was something that i was struggling with i felt like in my career in my career i don't help anybody actually it's good fun and everything but what am i doing what's my legacy so um so i decided to do a diploma in coaching so that's something that i'd like to do maybe on the side you know with with private clients or just to integrate into my sort of daily life really just try to help people um but i love listening to people and and, and really to be honest that's what's underpinned my career in television and, and writing really it's it's all about trying to tell a story trying to listen to other people and help them tell their story and if you think back to the Casey Stone I think that was my motivation to do that book was to help him tell his story and to help other people understand that and in a way to help him understand it too same with John Hopkins you know that was um that what I enjoyed about that whole process was going through the the life story and working out how it made them the person it was today they are today what their strengths are how they can use those strengths maybe now and um yeah and that's what coaching's about too so actually there's quite a lot of synergy between what I've been doing before and what I'm looking to do with this in the future but you know try to channel it in a positive way that's that's the idea <laughs> that's the motivation Matt, I know you're a, a bit pushed for time, but just very briefly, if I'm not mistaken, you tried to interview Tom Cruise once for the BBC and um, it was uh, slightly comedic in one way. Could you maybe tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what year was it? Was it um, was it 05 when they were, when uh, Valentino and Colin were the, the yellow speed block Yamaha anniversary? Laguna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laguna 05, 05, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, Tom Cruise was there um being the big celeb and everything and it was quite funny because he was quite obsessed with Valentino um so he was a, well that's maybe another story but anyway he was <laughs> around a lot that weekend and during that period of 05 was it 05 no it was after it can't have been 05 anyway it was been a couple of years after that yeah because I was working for the BBC so anyway I'm in Park Ferme at the end and you know when you're doing the pitland reporter thing you have this incredibly privileged opportunity to be the first person to speak to the riders when they get off i tell you when it was it was 08 because it was valentino versus stoner that big you know that big battle they had at lagoon yeah yeah, yeah and yeah, a corkscrew yeah. Oh, yeah that was it sorry yeah it was that year and uh so the, you know they come in and everyone's full of adrenaline and all of that and there would be and especially at the flyways there would normally be myself paolo beltramo from italian tv and um Mark Martin from uh, Spanish TV, three of us in this, and you, you, you're penned off, so you know, no one can get in there. And Tom Cruise was being led around by Manel uh, from Dorna, and he wanted to get, he wanted to be the first person to speak to Valentino. So Manel brought him into the little enclosure with us. So there's Mark Martin, Paolo Beltramo, me, and Tom Cruise. So my camera feed is going straight back to London to the BBC. And my director says, is that Tom Cruise stood next to you? And I, and I go, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, you've got to try and get a word with him for the BBC. So I said, okay. So I looked at Manel and I said, is it okay if I, you know, and Manel goes, yeah, yeah, go for it. Manel's a managing director at Donner, obviously you guys know, but for anybody who doesn't, 
And um, so I said, oh, excuse me, Tom, uh, my name's Martin from the BBC. And he's big smile, big handshake. He's like, oh, yeah, nice to meet you. And I said, is it OK if we just get a quick word for, for the BBC? And he says, uh, he's nodding and smiling. And he said, uh, no, I don't want to do that. But thank you so much for asking. <laughs> so that on screen, all anybody saw, because nobody heard it, was him smiling and nodding at me. Um, but actually, he was basically telling me to, uh, to get lost. Do one. <laughs> do one. <laughs> God, we don't want to tell you to do one, but we know you're getting picked up and you've got to get out. So, um, listen, thanks ever so much again for your time to join us on the podcast. Um, we hope we'll see you at Red Bull Ring. I mean, you'll be doing the circuit commentary again this year. I mean, that's what's that, three or four years in a row now? You've been uh, actually talking to a bunch of lederhosen and wearing <laughs> Austrians um, in Spielberg. Turn Austrian for the weekend. Every year since 16, actually, mate. Yeah, time's, time's moving on. It's a, apart from COVID, you know, it, this would be like seven years, isn't it? So, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll see you for some decent free um, media centre food. It's the only reason I go. <laughs> yeah, best media centre in the championship. Still up there. So, uh, yeah, cheers again, Matt. Good luck on the island. Hope everything uh, goes well. Cheers. Cheers, Neil. Cheers, David. Take care, guys.